wish to greet each one of you in Jesus' name this morning. Oh, come let us adore Him, Christ the Lord. I trust that's what we've been doing this morning. Brother Joe shared with us in the Sunday school lesson about the incomparable one, and I uh, was especially struck with the thought that when we meet God, or no man who meets God will be his equal. Uh, we can meet a judge, and we may be equal to a judge in certain areas, certain aspects. Uh, Brother Joe brought up the 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 uh, aspect of wood. Maybe he knows more about one thing than the judge does, but he had a story that he related. But when we we meet God, God will be every man, be our superior and every man's superior in every way. And I praise God for that because I'm glad I serve a great, big, wonderful God. God that's much greater than I am or anyone else. And that whose ways can't be reversed or changed by any man's thought. This morning, um, the message of the title is Sitting at the Feet of Jesus. And it's taken out of, out of a passage in, in Luke, Luke 8. And you're welcome to open your Bibles to that. Before I start reading there, I'd like to read a few verses out of Matthew 12. Just as an introductory passage. Matthew 12, starting with verse 16. And he charged them that they should not make him known. Jesus speaking here. He charged uh, the multitude that followed him that they shouldn't make him known. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Silas the prophet, saying, Behold my servant, whom whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my spirit is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. This is prophecy out of Isaiah. And especially the verse 20 is the verse I'm looking at. A bruised reed shall he not break. A smoking flax shall he not quench. Till he send forth judgment unto victory. And in his name shall the Gentiles trust. A bruised reed shall he not break, a smoking flax shall he not quench. I don't know what you think of when you think of this verse, when you read this, but what I think of is a spirit that's broken, a a broken person, um, but that still has a flame for for God. I see a struggling flame, a, a reed that's struggling to stand. Christ is not coming, going, he's not sent to, to knock that reed over or to pinch that flame, but rather he's here, he's, he's come to, uh, to, to bring life to both of those, um, to, to bring them into a place of, uh, to, to, into healing. And this morning, this is what I'd like to share about, um, I'd actually started reading this passage here in Luke 8, thinking of a very different message title. And I'll share that with you. I think the message title, I kind of forget exactly what it was, but I think it was something to the effect of uh, what ha- whatever happened to the demons. Um, and the idea was, in this passage, when we read through here, we'll see that, that, the, de- that the pigs ran over the cliff 
into the water and then the demons, you know, what happened to them? The pigs died. And the idea of the message was, you know, there's certain things that we don't know what happened to you, but it's, it's important we focus on, and that, that this was to be one of the, the, the supporting scriptures. Well, when I started reading this scripture, I was just touched again by this story in such a way that I, that I felt moved to, to change my, my message uh, title and, and uh, the whole direction in which I was going. It's a very simple message. I encourage you as we go through this this passage to be thinking about your own life. What has Jesus done for you? How has He healed you? Do you have places where you need healing? And what can Jesus do for you? And how should what should be our response to Him? Luke eight twenty six. And they arrived at the country of the Gadarenes, which is over against Galilee. So I'm assuming they they came across the Sea of Galilee there. They entered into the country of the Gadarenes. Um, I have a little picture up here of this. You have the Sea of Galilee. Jesus crossing. And uh, they get into this coastal region of of the Gadarenes. Gadara. which is over against Galilee. You know, it's a, it's a good day for the Gadareans. It's a really good day for them to have Jesus coming to visit them. But did they have any clue? What a good day. What a life-giving opportunity was coming their way. Did they know what was happening? I don't believe they did. It was just another day for those folks, for those country folks. Peasants, people that that made their living by working the land, probably had olive groves. Um, It was an occupied country. The Romans were there, uh, which may be why the the swine were were in that area or the herds of swine. It seemed like maybe those were a food source for the Roman regiment there. But here was Jesus and His disciples. They were coming to visit the city of Gadara. In verse 27, he went forth to land. And when he went forth to land, there met him out of his city a certain man who had devils long time and wear no clothes, neither abode in any house, but in the tombs. You read that verse once and read it twice and read it again and you get a picture of a very pathetic man. We see him as a dangerous, we would, we would think of him as a dangerous man today. Violent, unpredictable, scary, demonic, crazy, lost. And these are all words we think of when we think about this, this man. Not only that, but naked, insane, uncontrollable. And you know, you could have a lot of other words to describe this man and it wouldn't be an over- it wouldn't be an over. Uh, you wouldn't be over describing him. An over description. An overstatement, maybe, is a better word. Just 
the kind of man you wouldn't want to meet, really, and certainly the kind of man you wouldn't want to be. His home was in the tombs. This man voluntarily made his home amongst the, or in the place of the, of the departed. Imagine living naked, without any clothes, in the tombs, amongst the tombs, in the graveyard. And those tombs were different than what our graveyard is today. Today our graveyards are, you know, they're nicely manicured. They have grass growing between the gravestones and your yard, your actual, the internment is below the soil in a, in a uh, contained box. And, and so it's all pretty nice. I don't think that's how these tombs were. These tombs were places where people went to bury their dead and they were probably open tombs. And... It wasn't nearly as nice as what our graveyards are. It was, it was probably the, the bones of the deceased were probably visible in many places. He was living, his home was in the, in, amongst these tombs. Not really living, you would say, but rather an existence in a departed place. I, was, I heard a, a, a feature on NPR here recently that caught, really caught my attention and my imagination. Um, forget who the author of this book is, but he wrote about, the, about gold and what it does in our world and how it affects our world and what people will do to, to get gold. And they were talking about one of the, the miners, the mines in, in South Africa. And uh, what caught my attention though was he talked about these ghost miners these miners that, that sneak in to the mines and, and steal ore and uh, the kind of living they're subjected to, uh, they're often working for mafia. In this particular mine, it was 2.5 miles from the Earth's surface down to, to where they were mining this vein of ore that was 30 inches wide. And I don't know how deep it was. Hopefully it was a little deeper than that. But they had actually a, an underground network of, of uh, roads and so forth. They said as, as large as Manhattan Island down underneath there. Well, what happens with these men is they have to bribe some official to get down there. And then once they're down there, uh, if they're seen, you know, they could be shot. So they're, they're living in some... Uh, some little alley back, you know, in this part or that part or the other part. And they're at the mercy of the people who bring them, who'll bring them sandwiches down. Um, and they have to pay good for that, you know, their, the gold that they make. And uh, they're actually called ghost miners because they live down there for so long that their, their skin will actually turn gray. And, and they, I guess, start appearing like ghosts. Um, probably they get thin enough that they start looking like that too. And, and also they're, when they're after they mine the ore, they have to they have to uh, turn it uh, to clean it and so forth. They use acids that are really strong that aren't safe to use, and many of them are injured by that as well. I had to think of of this those people as as it relates to this man living among the tombs. Um, you know, here are these ghost miners working down there today. 2.5 miles below their surface. It's 140 degrees Fahrenheit unless they're blowing uh, cold air down through the... They said they, they 
use go through six tons of ice a day to keep some to keep those shafts cool enough for the workers to work. They 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 make ice and then put salt on it and break it breaks down and they uh, blow fans over top of that and blow the air down into those tunnels. But you know that these ghost miners down there aren't getting the full benefit of that cooling air. They're probably back in some tunnels where where they're hardly getting that. Well, they had it. They have it bad. I mean, that's that's certainly life I wouldn't want, and you wouldn't want. But but just think about this Gadarene, this this man here. He he was a man that lived amongst the tombs voluntarily, and um. He was being controlled by demons, not by his mafia bosses. Now, they're probably fairly close to the same, but uh, it would be much worse to have these demons living inside of you, making you do things that you don't even want to do, and, and controlling your mind and so forth. Luke 8.28, verse 28, when he saw Jesus, this man, this, this demonic, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God most high? I beseech thee, torment me not. This man knew who Jesus was without being told. I don't think anyone went ahead of him and said, Hey, look, Jesus is coming. Check him out. See if he can help you. I don't think anyone told him that. He knew who Jesus was without being told. And he knew there was a power greater there in this man that was coming than the controlling power he was possessed of. And he immediately submitted or paid, tri paid that power tribute. He fell down before him. Jesus went beyond this man's plea, this demon-possessed man's plea to be left alone. Most likely, it wasn't this man, this demoniac's plea to be, uh, it wasn't his plea anyways, it was probably these demons that were speaking through him to be left alone. Certainly, if this demon-possessed man would have known how much abuse he was suffering, he would have really realized that he would have reached out to Jesus for salvation. He wouldn't have told Jesus to be left alone. So I'm, I feel certain that that he wasn't speaking for himself here. Jesus went beyond his plea. He saw his heart. And in verse 29, he commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Let's listen to what this unclean spirit did to this man. For oft times it had caught him, and he was kept bound with chains and fetters, and he broke the bands, and was driven out of the, the devil into the wilderness. The devil's a real slave driver. He made this man so strong that he could break bands of irons and, and chains. Yet, this man, even with his strength, was completely powerless in the face of his evil master. He was driven, tormented, haunted, turned into something worse than a wild animal. So strong that he could break bands and yet so bound by his evil master. Jesus asked him, saying, What is thy name? And he said, Legion, because many devils were entered into him. Legion. Somehow this 
word reminds me of a of a um, terrible curse that the that the um, Arabs have for their enemies, and and the last part of the curse goes, and may the and may the may the fleas of a thousand camels infest thine armpits. Now, if you that's somewhat humorous, that's the last part of the curse. But if you've ever had a flea, even one flea, you would understand that that's a real curse. May the fleas of a thousand camels infest thine armpits. Um, we had we had more fleas in Romania. That was a common problem there. And uh, once one of those little guys starts biting you, and you start scratching here and scratching there, not knowing where it comes from, you start getting uh, you start getting a little bit panicked. At least I do. And uh, my wife got very much that way. Um, anyways, here we have a man who. I just, just, you know, just somehow that description just comes to my mind. Legion, you know, that all those, those devils in him, but so much worse than, than a tiny little flea that makes, you know, a spot that itches. So much worse. Here we have devils that are actually just, I don't know how to describe it, it makes this man's life hopeless. It's like, it reminds me of a, of a carcass, uh, of the carcass of a dead animal just literally t- teeming with maggots. You know, this man was teeming with demons. Demons in some way living in his being. Demons commanding his spirit. Demons killing his physical being. What a terror. What a terrible life. I, I don't know of any terror that could, could compare to that poor soul what he lived with day in and day out, night after night. He must have dreaded the nights. And they besought him. Now we have the demons speaking. So Jesus has commanded these to come out. And they besought him, Jesus, that he would not command them to go into the deep. And the deep here seems, in reading this before, I thought, well, the deep must be the Sea of Galilee, but it doesn't seem like that's what it was referring to. The deep seems to be referring here to the abyss or to the place of, of, of uh, eternal damnation. And, and the demons seem to be saying here, don't send us there yet. That's their final punishment. In Revelation 19.20, it talks about the deep. And the beast was taken with him with the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. That I believe is what the demons were afraid of. They were afraid of going to their eternal damnation, the place of eternal punishment. They seem to be terrified of that place. So they asked Jesus this question, and there was a herd of many swine feeding on the mountain, and they besought him that he would suffer them to enter into them. And he suffered them. Very strange request from the demons. They know that they'll be cast out of that lunatic, but where from there? Where do they go from there? They plead with Jesus to let them enter the pigs and the poor pigs. 
suddenly this group of evil presence is released into this great big herd of swine. And let's read what happens. Then went the devils out of the man and entered into the swine, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and were choked. And the man is freed. The man is no longer bound. The pigs were overwhelmed, however. They go down, they go over that steep cliff, they plunge into the Sea of Galilee, and they drown. And then we have the response of the herders, of course. They that fed them saw what was done. They fled and went and told it in the city and in the country. And all of a sudden, the swine herders have lost their job. Now, I don't know how many swine there were, but if it's like communities are um, in the, in the uh, Middle East and in, in Europe, many places in the agricultural communities, the villages, the villagers would, would let out all their animals out of their homes during the day to go out and graze, and they'd have a, a few herders that would take care of these animals. So if you had a loss like this, it probably represented the loss of, of a lot of the surrounding uh, countrymen, not just one, not, not just one owner, but there's probably many people who lost swine that day. And and you wouldn't really want to be the herder that was responsible to go back and tell people, hey, you know, tell the village, hey, sorry guys, but uh, we lost all your livestock today. Um, you know, this was this was their income. This is what they depended on. So these these herders run back. They tell it to the city and the country, and I'm sure everyone that they can find will listen to them. They're telling this story. And then the beautiful verse of this passage. So all of these villagers, I see a lot. I mean, if you, if you think about these villagers, this is probably the biggest news that they had in the last, well, probably that they've ever had. You know, they, they, they had news that somebody had a baby. That's a big deal. They had news that there was a, you know, someone died and that was a big deal. And uh, maybe the Romans, you know, had didn't done some maneuver and that was a big deal. But this deal here, uh, I'm sure that brought the whole village out and, and all the surrounding people. They came out to see what was going on. What had happened? Were these herders in their right minds? Did they really know what was, you know, what had happened? Were they dreaming? Were they sleeping on the job and just came up with some weird story and maybe wolves or something had chased the pigs down? Uh, I'm sure they wanted to know what, was, what had happened to their, their livestock. They went out to see what was done and came to Jesus and found the man out of whom the devils were departed sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed. I don't know where he got the clothes, but evidently he got clothes from somewhere. And he's in his right mind. And they were afraid. They were afraid. This was a big deal. They knew what this demoniac was like. They knew what he had done. They knew how he had tore chains apart, whatever else he had done. And here he was, clothed, sitting at the feet of Jesus and in his right mind. You know, he was finally in the mind that God had intended him to have. He finally had that mind that he was created with. At some point or other, he had lost his healthy mind. He has lost his right mind. 
We don't know how that had happened. And probably it's not smart for us to speculate how that may have happened. But now he was here. He was in his right mind. And this morning, truly, I don't think that we can be in our right minds until we've taken time to sit at the feet of Jesus. We can think we are. We can believe that we're, you know, got it figured out and so forth. But until we've really sat at the feet of Jesus, we can't be in our right mind, truly in our right mind. We can maybe have a healthy mind, one that is functioning, but one that truly performs like it should, we can't have. I'd like to sing this song sitting at the feet of Jesus. It's in, it's in song, uh, song number 91 out of the... Uh, out of the life songs. Let's just think about this demoniac while we're singing this song. This, this song was probably written, uh, may, may have been written about Mary, may have been written about uh, the children. I don't know, I didn't look into the origin of this song, what, what, what the scene was that the author wrote about. But I think this is very apt here. Let's think about this demoniac here. And also think about ourselves. Can we have a pitch for this? Sitting at the feet of Jesus Oh, what words I hear Him say So near, so precious. Love upon me, 
Give me, Lord, the mind of Jesus. Keep me holy as he is. May I prove I've been with Jesus, who is all my righteousness. So here we are again. You know, we have the townspeople here. We have the mayor, probably, the secretary, the chief of police, along with a few of the old fellows that hang around the police office. And then we have the babas, you know, the older ladies, the grandmas, that are taking care of the, that often left taking care of the children while the, the couples are out in the fields working or, or doing their day jobs. <clears throat> They've come out to see what has happened. And, you know, they see this man, he's, he's sitting in his right mind at Jesus' feet. You know, what a surprise that must have been. This man named Legion, what a weird name. Who would ever, you know, think of calling someone legion? And everyone knew what that meant. You know, all of a sudden this man is in his right mind and his real name should really be Christian now. Christian, not legion anymore. Possessed by one master in the power of one master and a good master. You know, unfortunately today I believe there's many people that are not in their right minds. People possessed of demons, demons of impurity, of lust, of hatred, of greed, fear, and on. This man, Legion, was certainly exception, exception. He was possessed of many demons, it says. However, you know, when you think of a demon, and that demon was different, it, it, it possessed that man in a different way. It made him do things differently, but... Um, you know, the more we give ourselves, the more a person gives themselves to wrong, the more he becomes in possession of it. And we don't know what would have brought this man Legion to be being possessed by so many demons. But at some point, he lost his senses completely. He lost his own will completely even. And there again, whenever we're possessed of anything outside of... Christ, we're, we're sick. We're not in our right mind. And these folks were afraid. You know, here it was a norm that had been changed. Um, you remember the story of the, of the factory in this industrial town. You know, it ran night and day, night and day, every day of the, of the year, 24-7, 365. And, and one night... All of the townspeople awoke. Something was strange. Something was wrong. And they couldn't. They couldn't. You know, it, it, it woke up the. It, it woke up the whole. The whole industrial town. And what was the change? The change was is that the factory had shut down. It had stopped. Everything was quiet. 
And I think that that must have been the case here. A norm had been broken and it was unsettling. And these people were afraid. Also maybe afraid that the devils had departed. But if they felt a sense of security um, that, you know, that these devils, maybe, maybe this man had been, had been so, such a, a mess in their village that they were just glad to see him out there being controlled by the devils. Maybe they were afraid that, you know, what he might turn into now. Maybe they were afraid that, that, you know, what he might be without his weird slave drivers controlling him. Maybe they were afraid of more loss of livestock. Maybe, maybe they, you know, their chickens and their, and their beef and whatever else, their goats and sheep would start running towards the sea as well. Maybe they thought that this, this man would make that happen to them. Or maybe even their children. We don't know what the all they were afraid of, these village folks. But I rather think maybe the main thing that they were afraid of was the unknown. They didn't know who this master was. They didn't know who this man was that had actual power over these demons. They didn't know what kind of man he was. They knew he had more power than the demons had, but they didn't know what kind of person, what kind of power it was. Was it a good power, a benevolent power? Or was it a power that was even more evil than what uh, they had seen before in this lunatic? They didn't know that their creator was a master of love and mercy and that he was actually there in their midst. But imagine with me, you know, a, a people seeing a person with so much power, not knowing if this man was good or, or evil. So they were afraid. <clears throat> in verse 36, it says, they also which saw it told them by what means he was, that he was possessed of the devils was healed. You know, how, how, when you stop and think about how, how would have these, how would have this man been healed? How would have they expected this man legion to be brought into his right mind? You know, whatever methods they had used before hadn't worked. Restraint wasn't possible. And that's not healing. To restrain somebody is not healing them, but restraint even wasn't possible. <clears throat> it'd, be, it'd be logical to think that they had methods of making chains, hand-forging chains that were very, very strong. And it says that, you know, these chains, he'd break his chains asunder. And you can only imagine how lacerated, how how much of a physical mess this, this man must have been from, from all his, you know, breaking out of things and, and uh, cutting himself on things and so forth. It must have been a physical mess. Especially with his evil powers in charge of him. And I expect that they didn't, that the villagers didn't expect this man Legion to ever be healed. This man was a terror had been a terror both to himself and his community. And imagine the incredulity and, and the disbelief of the common folk hearing that this man was healed. How? Where? Who? Words come to my mind. Uh, Romanian words come to my mind. The exclamation, Doamne fareste, God help us. You know, this is big news. Um, he had been healed and... They were afraid. Then the whole multitude of the country of the Gadarenes round about besought him to depart from them. 
For they were taken with great fear, and he went up into the ship and returned back again. This whole multitude of the country of the Gadarenes about him besought him to depart. Get out of here. Be gone. You know, we're, we're afraid of you. This was an overload for these people. And one note I'd like to insert here is that Jesus departed. He was a gentleman. He could have stayed there and forced his will on those people and said, look here, you know, I'm your Savior. You take your time and I'll explain it all to you. And, but he was a gentleman. And, and he left. It seems like he understood it needed, they needed time to absorb this. They needed time to let this sink in. They asked him to leave and he, he left. But we have this man, this... And I'm going to call him Christian now. We don't have another name for Legion you know, after his conversion, after he's brought into his right mind. So let's call him Christian now. This man Christian. Now the man, or now Christian, out of whom the devils were departed, besought him that he might be with him. No doubt. He wanted to be go along with him. This is understandable. Who wouldn't want to stay in companionship, in companionship with his liberator? I read uh, when we were in Romania, we, we buzzed over into Germany, took a little trip around Germany and some of those other countries. But we stopped by Dachau, which is one of the concentration camps. And uh, there I picked up a, a diary of, uh, just of, of Jews that had gone through that awful experience. And many of them had written parts of their diary in the, in the concentration camps. And there were, it was a compilation of diaries. And uh, one thing that stood out to me was how that they appreciated so much the American and French and British who came in and rescued them. You know, right away they were given candy bars and oranges and food and given medical assistance right away and helped. And these people wanted to stay close to them. They had nightmares. They had, they were psychologically, you know, weak. And, and they were afraid that the Germans would come back and get them again. Unfortunately, some of them were, some of those camps were taken over, released uh, by the by the Russians, and for those people, it didn't turn out very well. They went from from bad to very bad, um, and that seems that seems uh, incomprehensible. But anyways, these people so badly wanted to be next to their liberators and stay. You know, they they begged him not to leave. And I think that gives us an idea of what it must have been like for Legion here. I mean, for Christian now. Um, he wanted to stay close to Jesus. And understandably so. He was probably afraid that these demons were going to come back again and get him. But Jesus told him to do something. And that shows that Jesus' power is much greater than exactly where his physical presence is. And he told him, Jesus sent him away saying, uh, return to thine own house and show how great things God hath done unto thee. Go back to your house and just tell everybody about what God has done for you. You know, that's, to me, when we read about Jesus healing somebody from a distance, my, I'm seeing the times, my time's taken up. I thought this was going to be a short message. When we see, you know, Jesus healing somebody from a distance, that takes a lot of power. Um, and that's amazing. But to me, this is even greater. He's telling this man, who was, you know, called Legion before. Just go back. You're going to be okay. Go back and tell your countrymen what God has done for you. 
how great things God has done for you. And he went this way and published throughout the whole city how great things Jesus had done unto him. You know, the other healings, the physical healings, often Jesus told him, well, don't say anything. He didn't want his, himself to be known yet to the, to the public. But here he told this man, go back and tell everyone what God has done for you. He did. He was maybe the first auto-publisher of his own bio. You know, today we hear a lot about auto-publishing your own bio. He was, he was maybe the first one, but he did it verbally. He went back and he published. He wasn't afraid. Not a moment's hesitation in his part. He told everyone. Not a worry of making a fool out of himself because he knew what it was like being a real fool. And he, he knew what it was like being a slave of evil. And he knew also knew what it was like to be free to serve his creator and to be in his right mind. He wasn't worried about being a fool. He published. You know, he may have been the first one-man congregation Thanksgiving service. Think about all the things he could be thankful for. All the blessings he could recount. Those terrible demonic fits now removed from power in his life. No fear of the next attack. Not needing to be chained. Those regrets for the people he'd hurt. You know, appreciating the ability now to contribute to his fellow man in a useful way. The hurt at seeing the children run from his presence in fear. You know, here being able to recount his story of the master, of the real true master, and appreciating the children's interest and in, in their questions. The lonely wandering in the tombs, being driven against his will. You know, hopefully Christian now is enjoying a warm bed, decent meals, and the love of a family. Imagine how happy his mother and father and siblings were to have their son and brother back again. We don't know exactly how that played out with his family, but I hope that's how it was. I hope they were so glad to have their son and, and, and uh, brother back again. The total lack of human dignity that he had lived with, naked, exposed, and disowned. Now he was clean, clothed, and projecting human dignity. Not a spectacle anymore, but a witness of his creator. And let's, let's, let's read the last verse here. And it came to pass that when Jesus was returned, the people gladly received him, for they were all ready to chase him back out again? No. It says they were all waiting for him. They were all waiting for Christ. They gladly received him. You know, was this a week after? Was it a month or a year after? I don't know. The text doesn't say. However, there's something about this man's testimony. Christian's testimony that brought about a very, very warm response to Christ's return. And as a note of interest, we don't read about anyone filing lawsuits for the loss of the pigs. It seems like they understood the worth of a soul, the value of the soul. Well, let's remember to sit at Jesus' feet. There we can find our right minds. And especially think of this Christmas season. I'm going to share one more story yet. And that's the story of, um, of the scene in World War I. And you can look this up on Wikipedia or, or somewhere, read all the details. Just impressed with it again. At World, in World War I in 1914, there was, there was uh, the British and the Germans were facing each other. The British had the channel behind them. The Germans had their homeland behind them. And they were both in the trenches. And 
uh, Christmas came up. They were both, these trenches were terrible and it rained like crazy. It was muddy. It was so bad, it says the soldiers were covered with mud in these trenches. These trenches went on for miles, separating the two forces. And on Christmas, or the night before Christmas, or the day before, the British started noticing something very strange. There were lights going up in the trees on the German side. And at first, the British snipers took aim and shot at those. And after a while, they started hearing the Germans say, let's, let's stop, let's stop, let's have a truce for Christmas. And this went on for a while. And finally, uh, one of the British officers and one of the German officers came out and came together, talked and shook hands and decided they'd have a truce for Christmas. And the Germans started singing Silent Night. and The British started singing Silent Night in their own language. And this went on, and, and they started sharing hymns back and forth. Uh, and uh, the, the British singing their own language, the Germans and theirs, and they would clap after each other. Christmas Day, these troops came out of the trenches. They shook hands. They exchanged gifts. Many of them had received boxes or something from their own people, and they exchanged gifts back and forth, and they talked, even played soccer, buried their dead. And... They had such a good time that this lasted actually for some of them into, into uh, like up to the 6th of January. Back at home, however, their officers were not very happy about this. They were not happy about this truce and, and uh, ordered them back to fighting. But somehow the boys managed to keep the truce going for quite some time. And the testimony of that is, is that they, they got to know each other. Many of these soldiers who thought the other side were beast were worse than humans, got to know the others and realized that they weren't. And what I'm bringing out here, I don't, I don't know the ins and outs of those wars, and I don't know what would have been the best way, what could have been the best way out, but I know for a while there, here were troops from both sides that were in their right minds, that both were celebrating the spirit of Christ and because of that, good things were happening. That war drug on for another four years, and about 8.5 million were killed in that. How much better if they could have let that truce keep on going? For in our right minds, I believe on a personal basis or on a national basis, we're healthy and we're so much better, whereas our Creator intended us to be. God bless you.